I noticed in the uh, Cold Center brochure that I'm designated the current past of Cold Community Church. When I read that, I uh, felt like a Charles Dickens character. I'm the uh, ghost of uh, Cold Church past. I know I turned 50 this last year, but I didn't think I looked that bad. <clears throat> uh, David wrote that song. I just thought you ought to know that. Appreciate so much his teaching ministry to us and his encouragement through uh, through music. We uh, we Christians look back uh, to history for the facts of our salvation. The uh, the incarnation of our Lord, his crucifixion, uh, his resurrection are hard facts that, that are certain and sure. We can look back to them, and, and they give us confidence in our, in our faith. But uh, we as Christians don't merely look back. We look on to the consummation of all things, what, what the Apostle calls that, that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our expectation. That's what we look, look on to. That gives us hope for the present. When Jesus left the uh, apostles, he left them with the unequivocal promise that he was coming back in the upper room. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And uh, in Acts 1, in Luke's description of the ascension, he sees the disciples gathered on the Mount of Olives as Jesus ascended. And the angel appears to them and he says, You, you men of Galilee, why, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus is coming again. And uh, this idea of our Lord coming back to set things right became uh, part and parcel of, of apostolic preaching. The, the early Christians, the Christians of the first, first century, had a code word that they used among themselves. The Aramaic word, Maranatha. Uh, Marana means our Lord, and Tha is an imperative. It means uh, come. So it's a prayer. Our Lord, come. And in the next to the last verse in the, in the Bible, the next to the last verse in the book of Revelation, there is a prayer, even so come Lord Jesus. That's what we look forward to. As C.S. Lewis says, the leaves of the New Testament rustle with a rumor of hope. Jesus is coming back. Now, whenever we talk about eschatology or last things, that's what the word eschatology means, the study of, the, of last things, we run into all sorts of problems. The whole discussion is fraught with, uh, with peril. In the first place, uh, we run the risk of aligning ourselves with strange religious groups that uh, name dates and times and sit on the rooftop in bedsheets waiting for the Lord to come back. But uh, nevertheless, we have to talk about it because this, this issue is rooted in Scripture. It's part of, uh, part of the revelation which Paul says is necessary and, and profitable for us. It can't be avoided. There are over 300 references in the New Testament, they tell me, to the uh, second coming of Christ, one in every 13 verses. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something we have to talk about, something we want to discuss. It's uh, been a part of the creeds of the church from the very beginning. Every major denomination, Protestant denomination, the, Catholic, the, the creeds of the Catholic Church all affirm that Jesus is coming back. Uh, the, the oldest creed that we know anything about, the Apostolic Creed, states that uh, our Lord ascended into heaven where he sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, we used to say in California, there are only two kinds of people on California freeways, the quick and the dead. <laughs> but uh, that's not what the creed that's not what the creed means. Quick doesn't mean fast moving. It means alive. He's coming back to judge the living and dead. That's what the creed affirms, and that's what we believe. It's part of our doctrinal statement, and it's, uh, it's uh, emblazoned on our uh, stained glass window here that, uh, that uh, 
Richard uh, Herdigan uh, made for us. So it's it's a fact. It's it's a part of our of our belief as a church. We don't want to avoid it if we could. It's just there. The, the other problem that that uh, confronts us when we talk about eschatology is that the books that deal with this matter, by and large, are very difficult to understand. The books of Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation, because they belong to a literary style that's uh, that's unknown to us, by and large. It was a style that was employed in the first century. The Jews were familiar with it, but uh, we're not too familiar with it today. And unfortunately, we've lost the key to the symbols, and we're not always sure what these books teach in detail. The broad and broad outline, we, 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 we can understand the essentials. But uh, the details sometimes get biased. One of the really shameful things, I think, about the evangelical church is our tendencies to divide up over eschatology. Uh, my goodness, there are pre-tribulation people, there are mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, pre-mills, ah-mills, post-mills, pro-mills. That's just people don't know what it is, but they're for it, whatever it is. <laughs> and uh, for myself, I, I think it's sinful. Jesus said that uh, those who are with him would gather. Those who are not with him would scatter. And for us to divide the church up over non-essentials is, is wrong. We mustn't do that. There is one thing that the New Testament affirms clearly. And that is that Jesus is coming again. The exact timing is, is not, not that certain. We can't be sure. We can't be dogmatic. We can't be cocksure. So we need to be careful and not separate over that issue. Now, the classic passage for a discussion of this subject is Matthew 24. Will you turn there with me? Matthew 24. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I believe about this passage. I may not be right. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, some of the guys on the staff do not agree with me. I get no respect from my staff. A bunch of young whippersnappers who uh, dare to challenge my authority. But that's, uh, that's all right, because I'm not the authority anyway. This is the authority. I hope you understand that. And it's our task, all of us, as members of Christ's body, to discern what Scripture tells us. I may not be right, so you go home and work on it on your own. But I'm going to tell you what I believe. At least this is what I think I believe at this point in my life. And I I think I'm right. Uh, Our Lord here is operating in uh, in his function as a prophet. He predicts the future, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the uh, ruin of the temple, the downfall of Israel as a theocracy, and Christ's coming again. And those events are very clearly uh, predicted in this, uh, in this discourse. Uh, the, the passage actually begins, the setting for the passage begins in chapter 23, verse 37, where Jesus pronounces judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. The uh, Greek term that Jesus uses here means empty. Haggai the prophet, uh, some 400 years before, had predicted that the house which the exiles, the returned exiles built, the temple, would, uh, would be filled with the glory of Messiah. This was the house that Herod uh, enlarged and embellished and the temple to which Jesus came. And he filled the temple with his, with his presence and with his teaching and with his glory. But they rejected him. As John tells us, he came to his own. And his own did not receive him. And so he, uh, he pronounces this judgment upon the, the, the temple in Jerusalem. It's left to you empty. He says, God no longer resides here. And Matthew very significantly points out that he turned on his heels and he went out from the temple. In verse 1 of chapter 24. Never to return, as he tells us, until he returns again. 
And uh, as he was going away, his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. The temple was a, was a magnificent structure. Actually, it was a complex of, of buildings. Herod had built an artificial uh, mountain out of granite. And on that, erected a, a, a beautiful structure out of marble blocks, enormous marble blocks overlaid with gold. And they tell us the pillars that supported the temple were some 20 feet uh, in diameter at their, at their base. And uh, the disciples uh, just could not believe that the temple, this magnificent temple, would be abandoned by God. And so as they went through the, the temple uh, area, they began to point out to Jesus the beauty and the majesty of this, of this structure. But Jesus says flatly in verse 2, Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Clear prediction of the destruction of the temple. This uh, apparently silenced the disciples for some time. They made their way down through the valley of the Kidron, up, up the slope of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is very steep on the western slope, and so they probably stopped halfway up to uh, catch their breath, and from that vantage point, they could look across the Kidron to, uh, to the temple site. And at that point, the other gospel writers tell us that the disciples uh, appointed four to be a, a special delegation to go to the Lord and to uh, quiz him a little, little further, to ask some more questions of our Lord. Uh, John tells us, that as Jesus was sitting on, or pardon me, Matthew tells us that as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, these four, uh, James and John, Andrew and Philip and Peter, saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, they had correctly concluded from Jesus' statement in chapter 23, verses 38 and 39, that the desolation of the house would some way be connected with his coming. And so they asked the question, what is the sign of the end of the age? How will we know when this age is coming to an end? And what is the sign of your coming? Now, Jesus answers in the verses that, uh, that follow. What he does in verses 3 through 14 is describe the course of the age in which we live. This is the period of time that we refer to as the inter-advent period, the time between the first advent, the first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ. This is the, the period in history that the writers of Scripture refer to as the last days. The last days is not some far-off future uh, era. The last days are the days that we're living in. Hebrews 1 says, God who spoke in various ways through the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us through his Son. So uh, Jesus is talking about the last days, the period between the first and second comings of Christ, and he tells us what to expect. You'll notice in verse 14, the, uh, this section ends with the clause, and then the end shall come. So he's describing the events that will transpire from Jesus' life on to the end of this age. Now, there are a number. Jesus answered in verse uh, 4 and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. Don't be duped. Uh, don't be gullible. Be like, uh, be as wise as snakes, as Jesus said. Have your eyes open. Be alert. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and will mislead many. One of the things we can expect is a plurality of antichrists, those who come in, in place of Christ, who want to substitute their life and their teaching and their mission for, for his. So don't be uh, surprised, he says, when, if you see during this period a number of people who say, we have the key to life. They don't even have to be religious people. They may be totally secular, but they believe that they have found the answer to all of life's problems. Be on the alert, he says. They'll come. Many will come in my name. And uh, verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, war and cold war. See that you are not frightened, 
For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. The threat of conventional warfare and nuclear warfare, biological uh, warfare, is, uh, is ever-present. Don't be surprised, he said. The, the world will become a very tense place in, in which to live. Very threatening. The threat of war will hang over, over your heads to the very end. No one will ultimately be able to solve the problem of conflict between nation and nation. And uh, thirdly, there will be in various places famines and earthquakes, natural disasters. They tell us that uh, World War III, when and if it comes, will be fought not over politics but over food. And one of the major concerns now of uh, the UN is the uh, population explosion and the problem of feeding and expanding population in un- underdeveloped nations. What, what shall we do? Most of the world goes, goes to bed hungry at night. And uh, the, not only the threat of nuclear uh, catastrophe, but ecological catastrophe hangs over our heads. These things he describes as merely the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, these things in and of themselves are not signs of Jesus' coming. I call them unsigns. These are things that you can expect to see all through the course of, of this age. The emergence of Antichrist, the threat of war, the threat of ecological catastrophe. This is the name of the game. This is what we can expect. And Jesus said these things are like birth pangs. Now, uh, the, the idea of birth, the analogy of birth is very helpful because those of you who are mothers know that uh, birth pangs, the contractions that, uh, that ultimately lead to the birth of the child, increase in intensity and frequency as you get close to the time of birth. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. We can expect things to get progressively worse. These worldwide contractions uh, that Jesus describes here will increase in intensity and and frequency. But uh, he said this is not yet the end. This is just the beginning. Every generation, I believe, thinks that their generation is the one, uh, is the worst and therefore the one uh, in which Christ will come. Martin Luther thought so. He believed that the events surrounding the Reformation would usher in the coming of Christ. Jonathan Edwards here in the United States believed that the Great Awakening and the emergence of the United States as a nation would usher in the the new age. Uh, We've uh, gone through 500 years of history since Luther and over 200 since uh, Jonathan Edwards, and it hasn't happened yet. All we can say is that we're 500 or 200 years closer to the event. We look at our age and say this is, this is unquestionably the worst era in history. And historians say that this, our century is the most warlike century since the 3rd century A.D. Things are getting worse. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, as they say. And there's no question about it. But we have no idea what the next generation will face. They may have in their uh, arsenal... Uh, destructive capabilities that will make our nuclear weapons look like pop guns. We don't know. All we know is that Jesus said things will get progressively worse. There will be war. Our lives will be threatened. Times will be tough. There will be uh, the uh, emergence and presence of false teaching and false teachers. These things, he says, are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then in verse 9, He predicts that they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. I don't like that plan, but uh, he tells us that we can expect as a church to experience tribulation and distress and persecution. We in Boise today are in an anomalous uh, situation. We're unique in in some sense. Uh, throughout church history and throughout the world today, most believers are under pressure of some sort. We're free to worship without inhibition. But that has not been true throughout history. We need to thank God for the freedom that we have. But uh, the name of the game for Christians from the very beginning has been persecution. Jesus said that will continue. They'll deliver you up to tribulation and they'll kill you. Uh, In uh, 
Luke's uh, account of this discourse, he adds the rest of Jesus' statement. He says, they will imprison you, they will try you, they will arrest you, they will try you, they will imprison you, they will kill you, but not a, head of your, and not a hair of your head will perish. In other words, they will kill you, but they can't really hurt you. That's what Jesus is saying. But you can't expect persecution. Uh, in verse 10, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. This is what Jesus described, or what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians as the apostasy. Apostasy is unbelief within the church. There has always been unbelief outside of the church, but Jesus predicts that throughout the course of this age, there will be men and women who designate themselves Christians. They will call themselves Christians, but they won't believe Christianly. They won't, they won't believe what Christians have traditionally believed. So the Lord says, don't, uh, don't be surprised at the existence of false prophets and the deception and their deception and the fact that many are misled. And furthermore, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. The world will become hard and cold and sterile and indifferent and lawless. And that's of course, the age we live in. But it could get a great deal worse. This is the age of me now, where everyone is preoccupied with themselves, but it could get a great deal worse. And Jesus indicates that it will. Lawlessness will increase, and most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. This is Jesus' words to those of us who are living uh, in this age. We are to do two things. We are to endure to the end, and we are to give witness to the world. That's easy to remember. That's our task during this, uh, during this period of, of history. We are to endure. We're not to give way to the world and its philosophy, its ways of thinking. We're to stand fast like a rock in the midst of a torrent. And, and we're to tell people during these tough times that there is a way out. We're to be sensitive to the woes of people around us and tell them that what we both need is a Lord. And uh, I'd like to tell you about the Lord who enables me to stand in these times. We're to be firm. We're to be rugged. We're to be tough. We're not to be swept away. We're to endure to the end. Now, let me say one word of explanation about verse 13, because it sounds, when you first read it, as though endurance is what saves us. It's those who endure who are saved. But that's not what Jesus means at all, and that's not what, what Scripture as a whole teaches us. What Jesus is saying is that those who are truly saved will endure to the end. One of the ways we... We exhibit our salvation is by endurance, that we continue, that we're tough in the face of, of opposition. One of the best illustrations, I think, of this principle is found in the book of Revelation, in Romans 13 and uh, Revelation 13 and 14. In Revelation 13, there is a beast described who uh, is said to bear the number 666. This uh, beast gives his best efforts to try, to try to destroy belief in God through the last period of human history. He is the embodiment of the spirit of Antichrist that Jesus predicted. And his number, according to the interpreting angel, is 666. Now, don't think of that number as literal. Don't think about barcodes and social security numbers and uh, actual tattoos on your forehead and in your hand. Uh, this book of Revelation is one of these apocalyptic books, and these numbers are symbolic. The number stands for man. The interpreting angel tells us so. Six is the number of man. And six repeated three times is the number of man elevated to the position of God. The Number three is usually the num number of God, deity, or perfection. 
So six, repeated three times, is man raised to the level of God. It's humanism. That's all. Pure and simple. It's the belief that man is the measure of everything. What man writes, what he thinks, what he does, what he teaches, what he accomplishes, is what matters. God doesn't matter. And uh, this final embodiment of the spirit of Antichrist at, at the end uh, tells us that man is everything that, that matters. Believe in man. Trust man. Put your confidence in him. And the fact that it's put on your forehead and hand is symbolic of the fact that this idea becomes a part of our attitudes and our actions. We live this way as though man is the only thing that matters. If it's a literal number, I'm in trouble because my phone number is 3766607. I've already got the mark of the beast. But uh, this is the description of, of the beast. This is the kind of person he is, and the whole world will follow him. But in chapter 14, there is a description of uh, 144,000 people. And again, that's a symbolic number, representative of the people of God, who are said to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And they are celibate, he says. Now again, it doesn't mean that literally. He means that they have not bought into this philosophy. They have not prostituted themselves with this philosophy. They haven't believed what, what the beast tells them about, about man and the ultimate value of, of man's thinking. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, I think that's what Jesus means when he says those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who simply follow the lamb, who trust him, who believe him, who rely upon his word who count upon his strength, who live out of his indwelling presence. Those are the people that will be saved in the end because they are saved. The evidence of, of our salvation is the fact that we endure to the end. Now, what Jesus has done in 3 through 14 is describe the course of the age and tell us what we are to do in view of the, of the crises that, uh, of our time. We're to not be fooled. We're to not be frightened, we're to endure, we're to be righteous, godly, gracious, thoughtful, sensitive, morally strong, and courageous people, and we are to preach. We're to give witness to the truth. Now what follows is the answer to the question that they first raised, tell us then what will these things, what will, what will be the sign of your coming? What Jesus gives us in verses 15 through 31 is the sign that will precede his coming. Now here's where it becomes difficult to interpret this passage because there are some who would, who would say that the abomination of desolation in verse 15 is something that has already occurred from our vantage point in history. We look back to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the desecration of the temple in A.D. 135 when Vespasian uh, erected a pagan uh, worship site there. But for myself, I do not think so. I think Jesus is looking on to a time future, to his time, and it is still future to our time. He's talking about some destruction of Jerusalem that lies yet uh, uh, in the future for us. Now, I don't have time to document that belief. But uh, I'd like to just look at this sequence of events as Jesus describes it, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things that are in his house, and let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then, that is immediately after the abomination of desolation is set up, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe him. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is the inner rooms, in the inner rooms, do not believe him. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming, or parousia, is used in the Greek world, for the appearance of a king and the gathering of his subjects, so shall the coming, the parousia, of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vulture will gather. Uh, this, uh, this statement in verse 28 is an idiom. It corresponds to our idiom, where there is smoke, there is fire. Uh, there are unmistakable signs of certain events. When you see uh, smoke, you know there's fire that creates the smoke. When you see vultures, you know that there is a, a dead body. And so it is with Jesus. The sign of his coming is unmistakable. No one will miss it. He won't be found in an inner room quietly teaching a few. He won't appear on a university campus. He won't be a guru in Peru. He, it will be like the lightning shines from the east to the west. Everyone will see him coming. He won't appear in Palestine as he did uh, at his first coming in lowliness and in humility. He will come in glory and everyone will see. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, that is the great tribulation as described in verse 21, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's, again, an oriental symbol for cosmic disturbance, the breakup of everything that man believes is stable, everything that he tends to rely upon. These will be broken up and then the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And this is what Paul calls the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This unmistakable coming, where he comes to gather in his own. This is what Paul means or, or describes in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, uh, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, as Jesus describes the trumpet here. And the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now that's the consummation of all things. That's his coming for his own in glory, as Jesus describes it here. There are two precursors, he says, to this event. The first is the great sign which he describes as the abomination of desolation in verse 15. It encourages us to understand what that means. And then secondly, what he describes as a great tribulation in verse 21 that, uh, that will continue until uh, the Lord comes back. The Son of Man appears in the sky. And the question is, what is this abomination of desolation? Well, we have help from the Old Testament, because our Lord is quoting from Daniel, Daniel 9. And we have one historical precedent, an example, an illustration in the Old Testament of what he's talking about. Some event that was called a, a desolating abomination in history. And it was this. In the 4th century B.C., a, a Greek general by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the, the temple in Jerusalem by offering a sow on the altar. And that was what the Jews called a desolating abomination, or in Hebrew, a shikatshonim. Uh, shikuts in Hebrew is a word that was used for pagan religions, and shonim means to shudder. So that it's a, some desecrating sacrifice that, that was horrific. It caused people to shudder. Now that's what, what uh, Daniel predicts in Daniel 9 is something yet future to his time. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24. Something is going to happen in the temple 
in Jerusalem in one of these days that will cause the world to shudder. Some horrible desecration of the holy site there. Now, there's no temple in Jerusalem today. Uh, if you visit uh, Palestine, you go to Jerusalem, built on the temple site or approximately on the temple site, is a large Arab mosque, the Mosque of Omar. A beautiful structure, and of course the Jews could not tear that down. It would outrage the entire world. They have discovered in the last few months that the original temple site was somewhat to the north of that, of that area, and it's possible that sometime in the future, and not only possible, it seems inevitable that the Jews will build a temple on that location. And then something will happen, Jesus says, to desecrate that temple. And for those of us who have our eyes open and who are alert, we will know the significance of that event. The world will be horrified, but we'll see it with, as, as, a, as, a, as a sign, as an indication that something more profound is happening in history, in history, that our Lord will soon come back. And after that desecration, there will be a period of tribulation unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And then our Lord will come back. Now, this is what I believe Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2. Will you turn there with me, please? 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, we request, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, the word translated coming here is the same word you find in Matthew 23, the parousia, his presence, his appearance and glory, and our gathering together to him that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure. Or don't be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord is a phrase that's found over and over in the Old Testament to describe those times when God intervened directly in history to set things right. I think here... He's referring to the second coming. The day of the Lord is when Christ comes back to set things right. Apparently a, a counterfeit letter of some sort was in circulation declaring that Jesus' coming was merely a spiritual coming and therefore the day of the Lord had, had come. But, G, but, but Paul says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, it will not come. Unless the apostasy comes first. That's the apostasy which Jesus described in Matthew 24. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's the beast of Romans 13. This man who embodies uh, the, the spirit of, of Antichrist and who wants to turn the entire world away from its worship of God. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 666. Man elevated to the position of God, one man embodying that philosophy, and that, I believe, is the abomination of desolation. That's what ultimately desecrates the temple. Paul says in verse 5, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. There are men like that all over the world who would like to take that position of authority, but they're being restrained. God working through his Holy Spirit, working through his church, and through the preaching of, of the gospel and the witness of, of his people is restraining this, ultimate manifest, this manifestation of ultimate evil. Paul says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The mystery is the revelation that Satan is behind all the lawlessness in the world, that all the penal reform and law and order uh, legislation in the world will never stop the progress of evil. It may do some temporary good, certainly something to be worked for, but it's not the ultimate solution. The mystery of lawlessness is at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one, then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearing of his coming. That's the parousia. Same sequence. The manifestation of the man of sin, the abomination of desolation, and then an outbreak of, of trial, stress, distress for God's people, brought to an end when our Lord comes back. 
to judge the man of sin and to set things right in our world. Now back to Matthew 24, verse 32. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. This is probably not what you've been taught. This may be uh, new to many of you. I'm, I'm saying these are difficult things to understand, but you go work on it on your own. Now, in verse 32, now, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches have already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. In other words, you can count on me. You can trust what I'm saying. It's truth. When you see these things, know that my coming is, is near. The, the illustration that he uses is, is apt. It's that of the fig tree. And a fig tree is a harbinger of spring and summer in Palestine. It's the first tree to put out leaves. When you see a fig tree produce leaves, you know summer is near. Jesus says, when you see all these things, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the great tribulation, know that my coming is near. I'm right at the door. Now, there are some who identify the fig tree here with Israel and uh, her rebirth as a nation in 46 and then, or four, uh, 48, and then perhaps the the conquest of the old city in 67. But for myself, I don't see Israel here used as an illustration of, or the fig tree used as an illustration of, of Israel. His point is not, when you see Israel reborn, know that my coming is nigh. He's simply using a fig tree as an illustration. He's saying, when you see these things, the things that are described in verses 15, on through verse 31, then recognize that it, that is my coming, is near, right at the very door. And the generation that sees these things, that sees the shikat shonim, the, the abomination of desolation, and sees the great tribulation, will not pass away until all these things take place. Now in verse 37, he uh, makes a comparison between our days and the days of Noah. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so that the, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. <clears throat> two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. The people of Noah's time were oblivious to the signs. They didn't, they didn't know what was coming, even though Noah told them. They went on eating and, and drinking and tripping their way through life, totally ignoring the signs of impending judgment. And Jesus says, that's the way it, it will be during this, during this age. People will go on about their lives unaware that judgment is coming. Two men will be working in the field and, and one will be taken. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John uh, 14. When he says, I will receive you unto myself. One will be received, another left for judgment. Two women will be working at the mill. One will be taken into, into the Lord's arms, into his presence. And the other will be, be left behind for judgment. Therefore, he says in verse 42, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. We can interpret the signs. We can know that his coming is near, but we cannot know the day or, or the hour. But be sure of this, that if the head of the, of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. He would be watching for signs of entry. Thieves only break in and steal where people are unprepared. But Jesus says, you be like the Boy Scouts. Be prepared. Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Plan and budget for a normal lifespan, but uh, keep your bags packed and don't put your roots down very deep and be ready to go. Now then he applies in verses 45 through 50, 51 through an illustration from, uh, from a Jewish household. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their nourishment is the word 
at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. He begins to bully those that are in charge of him, uh, that he's in charge of, and uh, he disregards their needs. He's insensitive to them. And he begins to break into the stores in the household and feed himself and to be concerned about himself. Then the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour which he does not know and will scourge him and assign him a place with hypocrites. You see, because he's not real, he's not authentic. Weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth, just a symbol of frustration. Jesus says that... uh, One of the marks, and I really believe this is what he's saying, and we need to pay attention. One of the marks of authentic Christianity is that in these trying times, we will not look out for ourselves. That's clearly what he's saying in this parable. The evil slaves, uh, they, they break into the cupboard and they feed themselves and they nourish themselves from the good things of God. And remember, he's speaking to the disciples, to believers, and to us. And uh, he points out that the tendency, when, when, when things get tough and the pressure is on, is to start looking out for number one, to be a survivalist, to go out into the woods and stock our log cabin, and, you know, I'm going to look out for me, or to make money in the bad times. Or to feed ourselves from the word. And Jesus says, no, no. The mark of someone who understands the signs of of this age and who's waiting for me to come back is that you're nourishing the household. You forget yourself. You stop worrying about the, the threat of nuclear war. You're not panicked by the ecological crisis. You're at peace. You're doing what you can to set things right, but you know ultimately no one will until the Lord comes back. And so you're restful and quiet and peaceful. You're not fooled by the philosophy of the world around you, nor are you frightened by the stresses of this time. But you're living righteously, and you're serving the people around you. That's the mark. Uh, Peter puts it another way in his little epistle. He says, uh, the end of all things is at hand. And that's true for all of us. Either the Lord will come in our lifetime, we will see the events that Jesus described, and it may well occur during our lifetime. Or we will die and go to be with him. But in any case, the end of all things is at hand. Now, if you knew you had one week to live, what would you do? If you knew your end was at hand, what would you, what, what Peter tells us? Number one, he says, stay sober so you can pray intelligently. Number two, love the brothers. Number three, be hospitable, that is, invite strangers into your home and use your gifts to serve the needs of people around you. Back in the 60s, there was an uh, underground uh, comic character. Some of you may remember who, if you were students during that time, it was Fritz the Cat, kind of a profane little animal who expressed a lot of the philosophies of the cause, the revolutionary cause of the 60s. And I'll never forget one particular segment. Fritz was talking to one of his cat friends, and he says, Here we are on the brink of the apocalypse, and I can't think of a thing to do. And here we are on the brink of the apocalypse. And our Lord tells us what to do. Don't panic. Don't give way to fear. Don't be deceived. Go on living righteously, doing what God has called you to do in your sphere of influence, and serve the needs of people around you. That's the mark. Jesus says, uh, and with this I'm done, at at the end there will be a gigantic gathering of sheep and goats. The goats represent those that don't belong to him, and the sheep represent those who do. And he says to the sheep, Blessed are you, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me water to drink. When I was sick, you visited me. 
When I was in prison, you came to me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And the sheep say, when did we ever do that to you? And Jesus says, in that you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. That's the mark. Now, he's not saying that doing all these things is what qualifies us for God's acceptance. But he is saying, if we have accepted God's provision for us, if we are truly saved, then the mark of that authenticity is that we will serve and care and give ourselves to others and stop looking out for ourselves. Let God take care of us and trust ourselves to him so we can give ourselves to others. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to that blessed hope. You're coming again. We know you mean it. And we look forward to that event. Teach us, Lord, in light of your coming to live lives of godliness and purity. Keep us from being seduced by the harlot and believing what and believe what we're what we're told by the world that life consists of the number of possessions that we have, the amount of money that we have cashed away ready for some emergency. Or consists of uh, of someone who will minister to us and care for us. Help us to see that life consists of simply knowing you and being and making ourselves available to you and being used by you to help others. And we know that's only possible because you've saved us from ourselves. You've redeemed us from our self-interest. You've set us free from our selfishness and our tendency to cling to what's ours. We, uh, we want to make ourselves available to you this morning. In the years that we have left to serve, we do so in dependence upon you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.